The following podcast includes explicit language, including, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of August 21st, 2023. On this week's show, Yahoo Sports' Henry Bushnell will join us to talk about Spain's win in the Women's World Cup and the bitter conflict between Spanish players and their own federation that preceded it. The New York Times' Kurt Streeter will also come on to talk about the controversy over the blind side and Michael Orr's claim that the White family who took him in also took advantage of him financially. And finally, ESPN's Luis Miguel Echegaray will tell us about interviewing Lionel Messi, who I think just scored another goal. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I am the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the book's Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan. Hey, yeah, you're right. I think think Messi's in my backyard. He scored scored another goal. Yeah. I think that by the time this comes out, Stefan, the trailer for one year, the new season is going to be out. Show's coming out next week. It's has not been announced publicly at the time I'm recording this. So hopefully, when this is published this evening, it will be out. But if it's not, enjoy uh, the this first public announcement of one year, 1955, coming Ooh. everywhere you can listen to podcasts, August 31st. And the first uh, story we're doing is a sports story. So you'll probably be hearing about that more from me and maybe from Stefan, uh, in the days to come. Get pumped, Stefan. I'm psyched. Congratulations. Can't wait. I wanted to say a quick hello to our listeners on Stitcher. As you may have heard, the Stitcher app is going away forever on August 29th. But fear not, you'll still be able to find us. Listen and subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Amazon Music, or anywhere else you find podcasts. And thanks so much for being a loyal listener. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, Stefan and I are going to continue the conversation that we are going to start with Kurt Streeter about the blind side. Um, If you want to hear even more about that story, which is totally fascinating, um, then you need to be a Plus member. You get to hear bonus segments on this show and other Slate shows. You get to hear ad-free podcasts on Slate. You get to read the Slate site in an unlimited fashion, and you get to support us. Slate.com slash Hangout Plus. That's Slate.com slash Hangout Plus. A Women's World Cup that began with a lot of hypey TV commercials featuring members of the two-time defending champion United States ended with a first-time trophy winner, Spain. In a thrilling game in front of more than 75,000 fans in Sydney, Australia on Sunday, La Roja outpossessed, outpassed, outskilled, and outscored England one to nothing. Spain's victory demonstrated how quickly a traditional power can climb in women's soccer when it decides, after decades of neglect and hostility, to invest in the game. But it also showed how far the sport still has to go. Spain's players won despite an open revolt against the team's coach and federation over their treatment that remains unresolved. 
Henry Bushnell of Yahoo Sports covered the World Cup, including a bunch of stories about the fight inside Spanish women's football. Welcome to the show. Appreciate you guys having me. Great to be here. Great to have you watching the final, Henry. I was conflicted, thrilled for the Spanish players who were so skilled throughout the tournament and overcame so much, but disgusted that winning would vindicate the people who had treated them so shabbily. Yeah, it it prompted a lot of complicated feelings for a lot of people. And it's not just that. It's also you think about there were several players who would have been a part of this of this World Cup triumph um, and surely wouldn't have hurt it in any way. They would they would have made Spain even better um, had this whole situation not devolved into a bunch of just 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 a complete mess. Um, and, And those players it's unimaginable what they are feeling right now. Some of them I know are on vacation right now. I'm sure they watched, um, or maybe it was difficult for some to watch. Uh, so yeah, it was, uh, it was an extremely, uh, complicated, um, just a complicated conclusion to, uh, yeah. I mean, the world cup is always complicated, but, uh, but certainly the conclusion was yes. So I'll leave it to Stefan to kind of rewind and give the full context here. But I think a lot of people have seen, headlines and stories kind of after the game about this moment in the receiving line where the players are receiving their medals and the Spanish star Jenny Hermoso is hugged and kissed forcibly by the head of the Spanish Federation, Luis Rubiales. On her lips. A moment that she said afterwards she did not appreciate. Um, You wrote a, a column about the moment. Kind of what else can you tell us about this and the reaction that it's spawned within the national team and and in Spain. Yeah, it's interesting. It's obviously very difficult to get a sense for the reaction among the players, right? Um, because they're under. I mean, a they want to celebrate their World Cup. B they're probably under. They're, you know, they're playing for this federation and they're under under pressure to not make that the story. We're recording this on a Monday. Rubiales did apologize this morning, um, or I guess you know t- today in Spain. Um, uh, you know, after, I, I believe it was after the players um, and after the whole delegation flew back to Spain. Um, it was extremely uncomfortable. And obviously, you know, Jenny Hermoso, the, the player, um, she was when she said she didn't like it, she was kind of uncomfortably laughing slash smiling. Um, also later released a statement like in the and locker believe, room while they're celebrating winning the World Cup, <laughs> which is when she realized for the first time that it had been captured on video, like by a okay. live broadcast um and you know some, some of the some of her teammates and maybe her as well kind of shrieked in shock um when they're seeing this video for the first time and they kind of sort of joked about it um but obviously you know even if she was okay with it and didn't feel disgusted by it which is a big if um it, it clearly was not okay um and it kind of tarnished and distracted from which should have been, as we as we just said two minutes ago, a, a really triumphant story for these players. Um, and and in Spain, it did, you know, it, it, it was a huge topic of discussion even among non soccer fans. Um, and I mean, I, you know, I wrote a story about it, and I'm sure that will probably be the most read story that I wrote yesterday. Um, and that's you know, that speaks to the issue with doing it. And. Ruby Alice's his antics, I would say, in the hours after you know the final whistle blew on that game, really spoke to him just wanting to be the center of attention and wanting to make this about him, which it absolutely should not have been. And in many ways, they won. They won despite of him. Um, you pointed out in your story that 
the Spanish Federation's policy on sexual violence stipulates that forced kisses are considered unacceptable conduct with immediate consequences. But this does fit into the cliche stereotype reality of how the Spanish Federation has treated uh, women football players for decades. Stefan, before you go on, just a brief interruption. He also told an entire the entire locker room he was going to marry Hermoso. He was going to take the players to Ibiza. I mean, this guy is deranged. Uh, and like, I, sorry to interrupt, but like, no, it, it is in keep it is in keeping with the Federation's entire attitude, which you can kind of get into now, the whole history and context that Henry's been writing about. Yeah, I mean, it's the, this culture of machismo that has dominated the administration of women's soccer in the country. These complaints against the Federation and its male leaders go back to the 1990s. Um, you, you had a great takeout about the history of this, Henry, in which you and I had forgotten this, buried beneath all of the current controversy, that that the team had a sexist, unprofessional, abusive coach for 27 years and who was not ousted despite complaints from players over and over and over again until pretty recently. And then the appointment of the current coach, Jorge Vilda, um, was also you know, a, a reflection of how these federations operate. It was a nepotism hire. His father was a senior executive in the Spanish Federation. Um, there have been complaints about him going back for years and years that led up to the blow up last year. So why don't you tell us a little bit about last year's blow up in detail um, and how that sort of presaged what's happened at what happened at the World Cup? Yeah. So, you know, believe it or not, Ruby Alice is, it sounds like he's actually an improvement on, uh, on the previous president, um, which is, uh, or actually, I don't know if there was one in between him, but, but, um, Angel Maria Villar, um, was a pre the president of the Spanish Federation for three decades, um, which, you know, in itself seems a bit problematic. Um, and he was the one who just hung with this, this previous coach, um, Ignacio Carrera. Um, for 27 years, despite they, they finally made a World Cup in, in 2015. Um, be, before that, they had had no success. And part of it was Carrera, but, but part of it is this broader story of just the Federation not paying any attention to their women's team. There was a time where they spent less than 1% of their budget, their entire budget, on women's soccer. Um, which like is less just, than a decade know, ago. Let's be clear, less than a right. decade ago. Yes, this is in 2014, yes. And this old, this coach would call the players fat and call them little girls and belittle them. Yes, exactly. So Vilda took over for him, and it sounds like in the in the early years, there was a lot of problematic behavior. There were like bed checks, and he would inspect the players' bags after they went shopping during training camp. Um, there was, you know, the... One Spanish, uh, Spanish media outlet, Mundo Deportivo, um, d described it as just a dictatorial environment, um, you know, r reportedly. Um, a lot of that improved, but like th this broader story of the Federation not caring enough about the women's team continued up until, I mean, frankly, it probably continued up until today, despite the fact that they've, uh, they've won the World Cup and it, and it will continue. So last year, like this wonderfully talented generation of players lost in the Euro quarterfinals to England. So they still had not won a knockout game at a major tournament, despite, you know, having a player that would go on to win multiple Ballon d'Ors. Now, granted, you know, she, she tore ACL ahead of the, the Euros. This is Alexia Puteas. 
But they had so much talent to win at these tournaments. And the main reason they weren't, it seemed, was because they weren't preparing well enough. Training wasn't, you know, professional. The the staff, they didn't have enough staff support. They weren't arriving at tournaments early enough. They were traveling places by bus instead of plane. All these things that built up and that the players said was really, it was both affecting the team's performance and also affecting their, you know, emotional health. Um, and, and maybe their physical health in some cases too, in terms of injuries. They reportedly, we, we don't have you know, firm details on this, but they reportedly went to Jorge Vilda, the coach, you know, about a month after the tournament and asked him to resign because he was obviously part of the problem. That didn't yield anything. There was a, probably or apparently a, you know, a meeting with the Federation as well. A, a few weeks after that, with, with nothing, no change really forthcoming, 15 of the players uh, sent you know, identical emails to the Federation saying that they didn't want to be part of the national team until this, the situation was reversed, which is how they, uh, how they eventually put it. Um, the reason why it was 15 and not the full team is, is complicated, and reportedly there was pressure on the Real Madrid players uh, within, the, within the national team to not sign this letter, and none of them did. The, there's, a, there's obviously a, there's a dynamic between Barcelona and Real Madrid in Spain. Um, so a lot of these players are Barcelona players, um, and the, the Spanish Federation is largely seen, it's a Madrid-based organization, it's largely seen as a Real Madrid-adjacent um, national soccer federation um, that, that could be hostile to Barcelona. Anyway, still, 15 of the players signed, the, you know, sent this email, and it was a private email. The federation responded by publicizing the email and basically saying, how dare you? Like, how dare you do this? We're going to go forward without these 15 players. Um, Vilda refused to resign, obviously, um, and kind of, you know, publicly scolded the players and said, you know, we only want people who are committed to the team. So rather than taking these players' concerns seriously, um, they essentially pushed them aside. And that, you know, led to this, the last 11 months of, of tension around this team where, a few of those players eventually made it back, but some willingly chose to skip the World Cup. Um, some said they wanted to return, and the Federation kind of told them, thanks, but no thanks, and we'll, we'll go with other players instead. There's obviously more to it, but that is the semi-short backstory. And Bon Mati was one of the players who did end up coming back, one of the three best player in the World Cup, and she's kind of alluded to during the tournament, around the tournament before, that not everything is good with her and the Federation, with her and some of the teammates. Um, and she talked after um, after the final about how, you know, they won f- some of the players who aren't there. And I think, like, obviously we're not going to get the truth today about how the players feel about this or during a victory parade or during a locker room celebration. But it does feel like they now have a platform, all of the players, for not just in Spain, but internationally. And not all the players necessarily will agree with each other or tell the same story, but there will be opportunities for all of them to be heard. And whether that leads to change or not, it will definitely lead to journalism (laughs) being done. But we'll just have to wait, I think. Is that right, Henry? We'll just have to wait for next week, next month 
to hear um, what all of the players have to say. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem that it does seem Henry that there were some concessions made. They beefed up the the st- size of the staff. They improved travel accommodations. Even during the World Cup, after three weeks of training, like two hours outside of Wellington in New Zealand, everybody was bored and the players and their families said, we got to get out of here. And the Federation actually accommodated them. They, they moved the entire camp um, to the city, um, which is a hard thing to do in the middle of a tournament. So there is some sense that that the Federation is aware, but then, you know, that does still feel like you saw it in those, the, the, in the comments of Aitana Bonmati, like you mentioned, Josh, you saw it in the way that the Federation had behaved and you saw it in what the, the Federation tweeted out after the tournament ended. It basically tweeted out a statement of support for Jorge Vilda, the coach, mocking the hashtag that had been used over the last year, Vilda out, um, by supporters of the players. All it tweeted was Vilda in with a thumbs up. Yeah, essentially mocking their own players, yeah. right? By extension, right. that's that's what that was. Yeah, yeah. And it's very, it's it's very, the the whole. So yes, as you mentioned, some concessions were definitely like I don't even know if concessions is the right word. Like they increased support for the women's team done anyway, a bit right. over the past year, right? But it's also complicated because for the most part, FIFA controls stuff at the World Cup, and FIFA, you know, surprisingly, um, if if we look at it from a historical lens actually did a good job. They, they equalized most conditions between the, the men's World Cup and the, and the women's World Cup. The teams were staying at five-star hotels. They had base camps. Um, you know, they were flying on charter, charter planes, etc. So a lot of what was good at the World Cup wasn't necessarily fully arranged by the Spanish Federation. So now we get into this question of, that as you, as you kind of alluded to, this is not fully unique to Spain, right? Like this happens in countries all around the world with their with their women's national teams. What happens in the three year, ten month interim? Um, and there's one argument that, like, yes, the Spanish players probably have a lot of leverage now. If these players, having won a world championship, now want to stage another rebellion, they'll have a lot more public leverage. The other side of it is that I'm sure people at the federation will make the argument, well, we supported them enough to win the World Cup. Like, what else do they want? Like, um, which, which, which you do see in other countries. And I'm sure you'll see in places like Colombia, for example, which had a, a, an excellent um, you know, campaign at this World Cup, did really well on the field, has a ton of talented players. But there's a long history of abuse and neglect there. So there are multiple arguments that can be made. And there, there's no... There, there's no clear outcome here in terms of the you know the long-term future of support. Yeah, I mean it's a shame we're not talking about how beautifully they played not only in the final but throughout the tournament. Um and it's just remarkable that you could gut the team in the way that it was gutted and still have this core of players who looked like the best in the world and They've won all the U-17 and U-20 World Cups, and like basically none of those players, except for Parayuelo, the 19-year-old forward, are even on the team yet. It's like insane. So it looks like they're set up, It's in terms of the player pool, for success for maybe 12 years. Right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But Stefan... You know, maybe the U.S. women are are getting passed and and all of this stuff. I think a thing that we need to like stop for a second 
and think about and recognize is there was a moment when Brazil was going to be the team. And like, look what happened with them, with their federation. And that actually seems to have actually decimated, Mm -hmm. not only made the players angry, rightfully so, but actually decimated the quality of the soccer that they're able to play. And the thing that the U.S. has, I mean, there's lots of problems with U.S. soccer, lots and lots of problems, but the players get paid well. They have a lot of support. There is a lot of talent. And now they're going to be super duper motivated. I don't think, I th- and I don't think other than Spain, the rest of the teams in the tournament, even England looked that much better than the U.S. did at their peak. So I don't think the U.S. is going to like be lapped and passed by all those teams and maybe even not by Spain. Well, I, you know, I think you've pivoted to talk about the United States here. Um, look, look what I did. Look very I clever. Did. But I'm going <laughs> to go back and say that, yeah, but it would be a mistake to think that Spain won because it's soccer federation, it's national federation. Um is brilliant and pick the right players. Spain won because well, Barcelona. I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth. Uh, Spain won because its professional clubs, Barcelona and other teams, have decided to invest money in academies and training and coaching and other forms of support. What was it? Eight of the starters played for Barcelona um, from Spain and. Other starters from Barcelona played for other World Cup teams. I mean, this is a result of the richest sports teams in the world saying, we want to be good at this, um, and that will trickle down to the national team. I don't think you can say that in the United States. I mean, it's not like, you know, our our clubs are are have the money uh, or the wherewithal to affect the you know, the player pool in uh, for, for the national team, the way that Barcelona and other big clubs in, in Europe do. And we've seen that in England. We've seen that in Spain. We've seen it in other countries. Yeah, it's just two, it's two totally different routes to national team success. The, you know, the, the U.S.'s advantages are we, we have more girls playing soccer here than yep. any other country in the world by far, I, I assume. I don't 100% know I that, but true. I'm assuming. Uh, yeah, most of them are not being developed at, at an international standard right now, but because there are so many um, and because we just have a lot of resources generally in this country um, and a lot of money. And a college system to help. And the college system has certainly helped for a while. Like a decent amount of those players have become international level talents. Um, but now as like the the rate of development in and, and the rate of just like you know, participation growing in, in some of these European countries and maybe some, you know, South American, Latin American uh, countries. And, and, and that will, you know, we think will probably accelerate over the coming decades as well. Um, but the rate of growth is just is, is so far beyond what it is in the U.S. Um, and the quality of the development at these professional clubs in Spain or at some of the the English academies um, is just is, is so much better. Um, so as Josh said, the the, the U.S. is not suddenly gonna gonna fall off. But the and people at U.S. Soccer know this. Like the the elite of of the elite players are being produced in Europe right now. It, it doesn't mean the U.S. is suddenly gonna you know fully fall behind, but that's probably gonna continue for the foreseeable future. You know, Josh, I, I'll throw it back to you on this. The 
the World Cup, this tournament highlighted how much fun and how talented and how um, you know, just uplifting this sport can be. This was a great tournament. Jamaica, Morocco, um, South Africa, Colombia, uh, all of these teams that were afterthoughts in this sport for obvious reasons. They didn't have any support for the women to play. Suddenly were playing games that went to penalty kicks against world powers, Nigeria and England. England almost got out of this tournament on penalties. Um, and yet, we, as you said earlier, Josh, we end up talking about the slights against women and women athletes. And Johnny Infantino, the president of FIFA, gave his address to the women's football delegation, to the whole you know Congress of women's football for FIFA, and said, and I quote, because I want to, I say to all the women that you have the power to change, pick the right battles, pick the right fights. You have the power to change. You have the power to convince us men what we have to do and what we don't have to do. He puts the onus on women to ask the people who control FIFA's billions to, to push for change instead of FIFA just making the change on its own. Just to wrap up, I would tie that back into what Ruby Alice did to Jenny Hermoso and all of his comments after the tournament, which is that if you had any doubts, if there was any question about whether true equality has been reached, I think those two men did everyone a favor yep. by showing what is still wrong at the highest levels of these sports. Like the U.S., a lot of the U.S. players wanted to oust Jill Ellis, the coach. Like a lot of the U.S. men players wanted to oust Jurgen Klinsmann as the coach. Like national team players wanting to get rid of a coach is a story as old as time. And so there could have been some thought, oh, maybe the players are, maybe the coach is right. Maybe the players are wrong. Like, I think we now know definitively that that's not the case if there was any doubt. And we have Luis Rubiales and, you know, in this kind of, other other case, Yanni and Fantino to thank for um, you know destroying any of those illusions if they still existed. And and it's interesting because FIFA in a lot of ways has actually made a lot of improvements yeah. and like done done a lot of good for this women's World Cup and and pretty clearly proved kind of like the business case for women's soccer. Um, like they they broke even. They, they they invested a lot of money in the women's World Cup and broke even. And I'm sure they'll make a profit in 2027. But as you said, Josh, like it's clear that like there's a part of Gianni, that just like, and, and a lot of other people, that they still just don't quite get it. Henry Bushnell writes about soccer and other stuff for Yahoo Sports. Henry, thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate you guys. In our next segment, we're going to talk to New York Times sports columnist Kurt Streeter about the controversy around the blind side. Last week, Michael Orr submitted a petition to a Tennessee probate court alleging that he'd been duped by Sean and Leanne Tui, who'd taken him in when he was in high school. The story of the black football star and the white couple was the subject of the book The Blind Side and the movie of the same name. But Orr revealed that the central heartwarming implication at the center of those stories, that the Tuis had adopted him, was not true. 
Instead, they were granted a conservatorship over him, getting approval of all of his financial dealings, including the contracts signed for the Blindside movie, which won Sandra Bullock an Oscar and earned more than $300 million at the box office. Writing in the New York Times, sports columnist Kurt Streeter said the Blindside is, quote, the type of story we're used to in sports, one that undergirds our beliefs about sports power to create lifelong bonds, help its participants overcome hardships, and build character. It's also a simplified rendering of race in America, one that hinges on the trope that white people can be magically redeemed by coming to the aid of a black character. Joining us now is Kurt Streeter. That's one of the last sports columns he's writing for The Times as he gets reassigned to a new role in the Times Sports Department shuffling. Kurt, thanks for being here. We'll miss your column, um, but we're uh, glad to have you here. Thanks much. Appreciate you having me. I want to start by saying that the legal claims here are very much in dispute. The Tuies and their attorney, Marty Singer, who has represented the likes of Michael Jackson, Bill Cosby, George <laughs> Soros, and Britney Spears, um, they say that Orr's claims are outlandish and that he asked them for $15 million before going public. But Kurt, let's put the specific claims aside. Um, and I think the place to start is that this is all just profoundly sad. It, it absolutely is. As uh, you know, America really bought into this story uh, in 2009. And as you've mentioned, it, this became a, the, the movie became a runaway hit. And it was something that, that uh, our society's really latched onto uh, uh, really ever since. So it's been very interesting to look back on it now and in sort of a new lens and a new light 14 years after the fact. So you say in your column that you hadn't watched the movie because you were, you knew that you would hate it, I think, or you were resistant to the the theme, the tropes. What did you see when you did finally watch it? Well, I saw a, a simplified version of Race in America. And as you mentioned, a, a story uh, where white people are the savior to a, a young, as I mentioned in the story, hapless and hopeless is, is the way it was characterized in the film, young uh, black teenager. And that's the kind of story that I've always really been very hesitant to fall into. I'm African-American and, you know, I'm 56 now. Growing up in the 60s and 70s in particular and even, in, even beyond, I've always been very leery of stories like that. And uh, as I mentioned in the column as well, I, I grew up watching so many of my black uh, heroes dying in movies uh, at the end of the, always at the end of the movie to save the white hero or as the white hero uh, lives on. Uh, and that's just something that uh, I find very hard to stomach. And it's the way that Hollywood sort of uncritically adapts these stories. I mean, the the story of Michael Orr and the Tuies is unique in the in the sense that this was a white, conservative, southern, very wealthy family um, bringing in a child who had an incredibly desperate upbringing. Um, basically, Michael Orr was on his own from a very young age. His family life was chaotic. He lived with numerous families before he landed with the Tuies and was sent to this evangelical conservative Christian high school. Um, you know, without the race and class component, the blind side, both the book and the film would not have been successful. I mean, it is at the heart of it and it's the heart of his, his story. And it's, it's difficult, I think, Kurt, to sort of look beyond the framework 
to the the simple facts of what happened here. Um, and, you know, Michael Orr getting this strange chance to go to a private school and then get recruited by you know, every big SEC school. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is, it's not all that strange because the, because private schools all over America are uh, That's a good picking point. off uh, young, particularly African-American talent uh, from uh, inner cities all, all across the country. Yeah, I mean, where where to begin? Just the way that uh, he's, first of all, I, th- I think one of the things I think is interesting is that he has always said, or he has long said, that the portrayal in the movie was really, uh, unfortunately, quite incorrect. One of the things that really, you know, that really, you know, that they really try to show in the movie is that he, he had a low IQ and was uh, extremely unintelligent. You get the, you get the picture of a, of a guy that's just a complete blank slate dummy. <laughs> As he said again and again, I'm no dummy. I'm actually a pretty intelligent guy. And I, I had a certain amount of, a lot of discipline and a lot of skill going into, uh, you know, starting out at that school. I was actually pretty well formed and pretty, pretty much, uh, somebody that, uh, was, was really on his way when he then got the boost to go to this high school. And, that's certainly not the way he's portrayed in the movie. You just see this blank slate kid uh, with incredible physical attributes. He's just, as I mentioned in the column, he's just a body. He's a body, and he's not only just a body, he is an extremely athletic body. <laughs> you see him dunking early on in one of the scenes in, in basketball. He has no idea how to play football, and then uh, miraculously they teach him how to play football, and he begins to dominate that's that's uh, apparently he was already a, a, quite a good football player when you know when he came to the twoies and and to the uh to the school so none of it really rings true uh, according to him how hollywood has its way of uh, rendering these sorts of stories in very very simple fashion and as we know the story of of race and class in america is far more complicated than that so i should say that i up through 8th grade i went to the same private school in New Orleans that Sean Tui and Michael Lewis went to. Um, Sean Tui's dad was my dad's high school basketball coach. And so I'm from that same kind of milieu that they're from. And thinking about all of this now, it's impossible to imagine a book, The Blind Side, the book, that would have existed that would have told the story where Michael Orr was the main character because Michael Lewis and Sean Tui are friends. And the story for Michael Lewis was, here's the story of my friend and his wife taking in this black kid. And that's like, that's kind of interesting and unusual. And so I'm going to go and examine that and tell the story, which is, I think, objectively a fascinating story and the story of Michael Orr. And as Stefan said, his difficult upbringing and how he became an NFL player, it's objectively interesting. But what about the version of the story that is told from Orr's perspective from the beginning, that where he is the main character, where he, it's about, um, from from his point of view, as opposed to, you know, the Tui's point of view. Because the book, I mean, I've been, I went back and looked at it and and looked through it. And I think in a lot of ways, like, you know, most of Michael Lewis's journalism. It's incredibly well-written. He pulls out a lot of kind of fascinating detail, like including the fact that the school that Michael 
or went to, Briarcrest Christian School, was created after court-ordered segregation because parents yanked their children out of Memphis public schools, and the initial enrollment was 300 students, all white. And so this is the... this is the environment that Michael Orr gets brought into to educate him and to school him in the ways of, you know, society. It's this, you know, place that was created due to segre- due to segregation, due to racism. But a lot of the stuff that's also that's in the movie is in the book about, you know, Michael being unformed, being uneducated, um, not being able to take tests, not really answering the questions, always looking down. It's sort of this story of him kind of coming out of his shell in large part due to the tutelage and the love that's given to him by this family. And so, Kurt, I think there might there might be a grain of truth in the depiction in mm-hmm. the movie. It's just extremely unnuanced. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't have, I think, the nuance that the book does. And also, Michael, as an individual, is made to stand in for the black athlete, for black people, for black adoptees in a way that sort of strips him of his individualism and of his agency. Well, yeah, exactly. Boy, there's a lot there. Uh, I completely agree that he's the, the nuance and the humanity of his character in the movie is, uh, is not really shown. Again, he's a blank slate. He pretty much follows what this wealthy white family uh, tells him to do. We don't see any of his interior life. We don't, we don't have a real, we have a bare minimum feel for this kid who is actually a super fascinating character. And I think particularly times have changed and hopefully, hopefully if this film was made now, although there's no guarantee of it, hopefully maybe there would be a different director, a different screenwriter. Hopefully we would be able to develop his character. He has an amazing story of a kid that decided very early on. I think he says, I've seen in interviews, you know, he's 11 and 12 and decides that he wants nothing to do with the environment that he's grown up in. He wants to leave and he does everything in his power to figure out how to get out of the project's that he grew up in, in a desperate environment. That is really interesting. I want to see that mm-hmm. in this film. I like to think that, particularly if, with all we've been through over the last 14 years, that we would see it if this film was made in 2023. I have no, you know, again, maybe not, Hollywood being Hollywood. But the fact that he is this absolute blank slate, he's first and foremost, again, an, an athlete, I mean, Talk about trope. It makes it seem like he's just naturally born with this incredible skill, uh, superhuman ability to do anything physically and dunk a basketball, slam opponents without any work, without any studying. As he says, as he said in interviews, I was studying football when I was, you know, it sounds like 14, 15, 16 years old. I worked my ass off in order to be in the position that I, that I was in going into that, this school. Yeah, the interesting thing is that that's not shown. It actually is in the book um, at the very end or does open up to Michael Lewis and gives him an incredibly detailed account of his life from age seven until the end of high school, filling in all of these details that 
that that he had withheld. And the withholding is portrayed in the film as him being unable to explain or think or remember or talk about it. But it's in there in the book. And when you sort of step back and try to put yourself, which I obviously can't do, in Michael Orr's shoes and imagine what it must have been like for him to be surrounded by these rich white people telling him every moment of the day what to do and what he had to do in school, in life, how to dress, how to eat, how to talk, how to drive. You recognize that this wasn't about the Tuies being saviors. It was about Michael Orr protecting himself and waiting until he felt comfortable enough to tell his own story. I skimmed through the book also um, to prepare for this. And there are a couple of passages that just are, there's more than a couple of passages that are just absolutely cringeworthy. Leanne Tuey at one point saying, every day I try to make sure he knows something he doesn't know. If you ask him, where should I shop for a girl to impress her? He'll tell you Tiffany's. I'll go through the whole golf game. He can tell you what six under is and what, what's a birdie and what's par. I want him to know the difference between Monet and Matisse. Wow. Uh, I really focused on the film and I did, and I didn't go back and skim through the book. I mean, uh, yeah, cringeworthy. Exactly. Uh, again, particularly 14 years later, uh, it's not, I mean, shoot, I mean, for, I think for, for, for most black folks, it was cringe, definitely cringeworthy in 2009. I would say definitely was for me. Uh, which is why I not only didn't, I didn't watch the movie, I didn't read the book and I'm a big Michael Lewis fan. Wow. I mean, <laughs> again, sort of where, where, where to begin here. I think one of the things that I, that I think is interesting and is, is worthy of conversation is, as you mentioned, so this is a, a, a young black kid from the projects thrust into this world. All of a sudden, not only is he surrounded by a wealthy white family telling him what to do, in comes Michael Lewis from as far as I can tell, sort of New Orleans aristocracy, uh, or, you know, or upper class New Orleans. He's, he's now a narrative storyteller reporter on hand trying to tell the story. The, the dynamic of that is, is a very difficult one as I'm a black reporter who's written many long form stories. First of all, when you're interjecting yourself into the life of a family, it's always very difficult. Then you bring race into it. Of course, this kid is going to be extra. I mean, it's going to be very hard for him to open up to, to Michael Lewis. And then it takes painstaking effort, time, patience in order to get young Michael Orr to, to speak or to, to really, to really open up. I mean, I have difficulty with it in my, you know, in the stories that I've written, you know, about about black families, about white families, there's always a racial, there is a racial component in there. And especially if you're a black subject of a story or, and there's a class issue, there's a class difference that can be very, very hard in terms of trust, in terms of trusting the reporter and the writer. And you have to work extra, extra hard in order to, as a reporter and be very diligent and very caring about getting the story out, the interior story, which is the true story, the story that you want to have. The thing that really seems to have rankled him was the depiction in the movie and how that defined him. And the fact that he's a real person who has become a symbol for a lot of people of something that he doesn't want to be a symbol of or doesn't necessarily want to be a symbol of. And 
it's easy to kind of put the claims in the lawsuit aside, as we have for most of this conversation about whether the Tuies kind of consciously took advantage of him in the way that he alleges. You know, there is legal adult adoption in Tennessee. They didn't have to do this conservatorship. He seems to have signed away his life rights for the movie for no money, which doesn't seem like it would be in anyone's financial interest to to do that. And these are people that are very wealthy and very sophisticated about money. At the same time, you know, going back and, and reading the book, even if we have to stipulate that Michael Lewis and the Tuies are, are friends and, and all of that, um, given the timeline here, also seems to kind of defy belief that this was all a big plan that they had to take advantage of this kid from the beginning. That just doesn't, it doesn't seem logical and it doesn't seem like it actually comports with the facts. And so that's why I just kind of fall back on the fact that looking back on it now, this is what's clear, what seems clear. Michael Orr sees that he didn't make any money or didn't make that much money from this thing that portrayed him on screen. He looks at these documents that don't say what he thought they said or don't say what the Tui said that they thought they said. And he goes back and reevaluates everything that's happened and naturally wonders what everyone's motives were. And that's, I thought there was a good column about this in Defector, Stefan, that has this line at the end, the thing about racism is it drives you insane. The smallest kernel of doubt can infect the whole wiring in your brain. When Michael Orr saw his depiction in The Blind Side as a helpless idiot, more or less, sled hauled to stability by a family of white saviors, he was troubled and disgusted. And that seed of doubt about his real relationship to the Tuies was more than enough to bring things to this point. Yeah, that was by Israel Daramola. And and it, it really gets to the core of this, um, at what must you know have been on Michael Orr's mind for going on, what, 20 years now. And he's got a new book out um, that reevaluates a lot of what's happened to him. And the, there's, there's a, a sort of a, a, a difficult admission by Orr that he's also had trouble with obesity and brain injury from playing football. I found myself in hard times again, he writes, the struggles I faced these last few years, job loss and battles with mental health haven't really been shared with the public. I mean, this is a guy that played in the league for like six or seven seasons in the 2010s. And as we know, Many, not all, but many NFL players go on to have these sorts of struggles in retirement. So it's it's impossible for us to really know what's what's driving Michael Orr's decision to go public in the way he's gone public now. Yeah, it it, it really is, and you don't really get much of a sense from it from the film because he displays very little savviness in the film and very little very little intelligence i think at the at the end of the film it's it, it uh, we see a, a line that says his his iq improved by you know, 20 points <laughs> so uh going from you know i guess what would be probably like low average to or 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 lower to uh to maybe average so you don't really get a sense that uh that he has the the wherewithal, uh, the character in the film at least to to launch into something like this lawsuit. It's hard to it's all it's hard to say. And I, and again, that's the film's portrayal. Uh, I, I think it from 
everything that I've seen from him say and even watching him speak, it just seems, uh, it, it all seems very absurd. <laughs> Man, it's just, a, it is a terrible, it's a terrible thing. You know, I, I also agree. I think the, the you know, the, the family, Michael Lewis, I think that, they, that they've had probably a, the best of intentions. To me, this is most likely... I mean, really, that this is at the feet of of Hollywood and a Hollywood depiction of a, of a story of a book that that could have been done with a lot more delicacy. Yeah, in a way, Josh, that didn't affect Michael Orr for the next, you know, decade and a half. Yeah, and it might have taken. You know, I mean, imagine him. The, the, what the film comes out, and he's in his late teens, early twenties, probably. You know, still, you know. A, pretty fairly immature and maybe you don't want to speak up maybe you don't you know you don't like how the way that you're portrayed but then as you grow older and you begin looking back again then you not only have the benefit of time but you are a more mature person and you're able to speak out and say hey this absolutely was not me a lot going on here (laughs) (laughs) that is definitely true kurt streeter wrote about michael orr in the blind side for the new york times we'll link to his column in our show notes. Kurt, thank you so much for coming on with us. Thank you very much. Up next, ESPN's Luis Miguel Echegaray on Lionel Messi. Since arriving on these shores a few weeks ago to join Inter-Miami of Major League Soccer, Lionel Messi has bought Lucky Charms in a Publix, team sponsor, popped into an Adidas store, personal sponsor, and scored 10 goals in seven games to lead his pink-jerseyed club to its first-ever trophy. Messi's most recent tally came on Saturday night in Nashville in the final of the League's Cup tournament, which involves teams from MLS and Mexico's Liga MX. Here's the call on Apple TV. Gramaski in the middle. Taylor cutting it to his right, trying to get it to Gramaski. Uh-oh. Lionel Messi around Zimmerman. Messi! After a 1-1 tie, the game went to a penalty shootout. Messi converted Miami's first spot kick and then stood arm-in-arm with his new teammates, who must wake up every morning and say to themselves in disbelief, I'm going to work today with Leo fucking Messi. Ten rounds later, (laughs) Miami's keeper made his pen, Nashville's didn't, and everyone, including Messi, went bonkers. ESPN's Luis Miguel Echegaray was at the game, and not only that, scored a one-on-one interview with Messi last week. He is with us now. Thanks for coming on the show. An absolute pleasure. Thank you. Luis, you've been tracking Messi like a stalker for the last month. (laughs) This has had a kind of Beatles in America in 1964 feel to it. I may be overstating that. What was it like at the game on Saturday night? No, I think you're spot on, Stefan. I think uh, he would be probably, what, uh, Paul McCartney in this situation, maybe, uh, changing, uh, you know, the rhythm of everything. I'm not sure. Listen, Yes, I've been a stalker, and, and I think the entire nation, whether it's a you know physical or digital following, has been stalking and following just the absolute enormous, transcendent, glorious, incredible start of Lionel Andre Messi's arrival 
to not just MLS, Inter Miami and the United States. You mentioned the the goals that he has scored and, of course, the historic trophy. His 44th a record by any single professional player ever. Uh, and it's been amazing, to be honest with you, for a few reasons. One, because he didn't just arrive to any city. He arrived to Miami, which is the Latin American capital city of the world. So the energy is already there. He arrived to a team that wasn't just struggling. It was the worst. It was bad. It still is in MLS standings perspectives. He arrived, you know, throughout all this circus. And this is the genius of Lionel Messi. And you said I, I had the pleasure of talking to him throughout all the storms, throughout the drama, the intensity, all the craziness. He remains the introvert. He remains the calm waters. And he just creates magic with his feet. And I think the Nashville final made it synonymous in terms of he scores that ridiculous goals, it sends to penalty shootouts, and it was a great atmosphere. But no matter whether you rooted for Messi or against him, you all just had to stand up uh, to admire what's happened. And, and it's an incredible, incredible arrival. Amazing. Nothing in sports ever goes like this. I can't think of an example where uh, from the first game when he scored the free kick to to win it, to goals in every game, to winning the trophy. Um, it certainly didn't happen this way at PSG when he had a lot of talent around him, best best talent in the world. And so it would s sound a little naive, I think, to be like, this is just the plan coming together. But he seems happy. MLS must be thrilled. Inter-Miami must be thrilled. Everyone in the world <laughs> seems thrilled. Do you think that um, this is, to some degree, a, a plan coming together? Or could nobody have ever possibly plan for it to happen this quickly and this well? You know, Josh, that's a good question because it, it is this beautiful story that's just being told, uh, you know, in so many ways, right? And it's not over. It's not even the first chapter. There's so much to talk about. He hasn't played an MLS game exactly, yet. Exactly, <laughs> which is ridiculous. There's still so much more to discuss. But I, I do. in order to answer that question, I think it's important to understand the context of Lionel Messi and his story throughout his entire career. You know, this is a man that needed growth hormones to be a professional player, arrives to Barcelona, he misses Rosario Argentina, he, but he still pushes through. He arrives to a Barcelona team with Ronaldinho and Samuel Eto'o, and, you know, it took him a few games to score his goal, but then he develops 19 years old, 20 years old. Now you're starting to see the brilliance the genius. And then from that moment around sort of the early stages of Barcelona, he creates these stories that we're talking about. Oh my God, could you have predicted this? Oh my God. Oh my God. Obviously in Qatar, the World Cup being one of the biggest ones, aside from his Champions League matches, where it's like, you know, we have to remember that before that World Cup win, he was almost out of the national team after losing to Chile at Copa America. Like he had enough because he was not a son of Argentina for many years. Because unlike Diego Maradona, who'd stayed there and played for Boca Juniors and stuff, Messi left at a very early age. So there was a, a sort of a lack of a connection between nation and compatriot. So, to, you know, this is a long-winded answer to tell you that, like, it, it, yes, obviously, many things were put together in order to make sure that at the very least, the show was put on, Inter-Miami. I mean, you go to an Inter-Miami game and it's like, you know, the, the, the DJ's playing 
Latin trap and reggaeton music, Bad Bunny's playing, and you know, right before kickoff, Gloria Stefan like comes on, oh, Chico Bubba, come on, Luna Conga, like, and then everybody just goes crazy because it's like this Miami vibe. So he's perfectly suited for that. And then in the first game, he comes in as a sub and he scores that ridiculous free kick. He's done that his entire career, right? You know, so so yes, the plan, there was a plan to make sure that you know all of this was going to put, be put together, but. I don't think anybody could have expected the fact that he he scored 10 goals and and scored all these late dramatic uh, stoppage time winners and obviously the trophy. So, yes, there was a plan. But when it comes to Lionel Messi, the plan never goes to plan because it's so much bigger than that. You know, I think there are two parallels or comparisons that are worth looking at here, Luis. And one is... Ronaldo choosing to go to Saudi Arabia for a half a quadrillion dollars. But the other yeah. one, I think, is David Beckham. And it's more appropriate yeah. to talk about because Beckham came to America in the early mid aughts. Um, and it has been sort of viewed as this transformative moment. But on the pitch, nothing, as Josh pointed out, that Beckham did compares in the slightest to what Messi has done in like three weeks. It is <laughs> astounding when you look at it through that lens. Um, and back to the, the Ronaldo comparison that I want you to address as well. One guy took the Brinks truck filled with money and the other guy decided to come to a country and a city where he could fit in, but also not be a global superstar. Yeah. And also make a lot of money. And also still yeah, make a lot and, of money, but in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listen, uh, before I answer this question, I always get like, uh, you know, my colleagues here at ESPN, uh, my very good friend K. Murray always makes fun of me because I am such a, you know, oh, you're such an anti-Ronaldo uh, and such a pro-Messi. And it's a joke, and obviously, but, you know, and as a journalist, I try and be as, as not, you know, not as biased as I can, but... Because I'm Latin American, you know, there's also that connection as well, right? But to answer your question, here's the thing. We have a saying in Spanish where it's like, Cristiano Ronaldo es el mejor del mundo, pero Messi es de otro planeta. Ronaldo is the best in the world. Messi's from another planet. The, there is things that he does on the pitch, to your point about Beckham and how he obviously, as a football player, he was nowhere near to what Messi was. But obviously his brand was really the other mm -hmm. component of it, his, his, his movie, Hollywood, good looks, et cetera, et cetera. Messi is something else completely different, a kid that's 5'6", five, 5'7", five, and he just makes grown men look like children every single day. And he is the greatest, in my opinion, that's ever lived. I don't care to argue about this with anybody. To me, that's who he is. But I think, back to the Latin American thing, when Al Hilal offered this record-breaking amount to Lionel Messi. After Ronaldo had already gone there, of course, he was the first one that started there. It's important to put in a person here that's very uh, crucial to this narrative, and that's Antonella Rocuso, his wife. They essentially came together, and, and obviously Messi and the team were put up with all these offers. They came from everywhere. Obviously, Inter-Miami had been a plan, as Jorge Mas said it, from 2020. Uh, I'm sure Premier League teams as well were trying to put something together and the Saudi Arabia and the Saudi Pro League came in as well and I'll out. But Antonella Rocuso said this, listen, I, we, we left Barcelona to tears. Our children like left their home, the only home they ever knew, to go to Paris. At Paris, you were not loved. 
the timing wasn't great because Argentina had just won the World Cup against France. So as well, there was that mi mi mixture of that relationship in between. You left Barcelona because of economical issues. He, you never wanted to leave. He went to Paris. Paris, as you said, Josh, before, it didn't work out like from so many perspectives. And Antonella was like, you will go to hell, Leo, if you think that I'm going to take our kids to Saudi Arabia and be away from things that we don't know about and stuff like that. They wanted to be happy. They wanted a place to call their home. And Miami, if if you're a Latin American and you're not able to be in your own country where you come from, Miami is the closest thing after that. So that's the first question I asked him when I did the one-on-one. -on -one. You seem the happiest I've ever seen you. And he's like, yep, I am. Because for two years, it was really tough. I didn't like it. And now my family's happy. And when my family's happy and my wife is happy, I'm sure all of us know this, then I'm happy as well. So that's the component. So I don't think there was ever going to be a check big enough to persuade Lionel Messi to go to Saudi Arabia, as opposed to Cristiano Ronaldo. I don't want to speak for his team or whatever, but obviously the big component is the financials side of it, but also him being the name of the league itself as it moves into this new development of bringing European talent. So Messi said, well, I, I need to be happy. And also, I've just won the World Cup. Like, what else is there for me to do? Let's try and conquer yeah. something else. So that, So there's many narratives as well that fall into it. One of the things I love about you, Luis, is... Um, while you do try to maintain objectivity about things that aren't Peru and Aston Villa, <laughs> just like your passion for the game and its characters and the history just kind of pours out of you. You're not clinical about anything. And so while this might sound like a strange kind of question, I don't mean to impugn your objectivity in any way, but as you said, Leo, Lionel Messi's from another planet. He's one of one. You think he's the greatest player of all time. I have actually never been in the presence of a person like that and like one-on-one -on -one like that you get the first interview with him when he comes to america you got good stuff out of him you ask good questions but is there a part of you that's starstruck is there a part of you that it's like an otherworldly experience and are you able to actually like keep your head and like did you feel like your like soul was leaving your body <laughs> or something in the moment when you're with the great messy yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, first of all, Josh, thank you so much for the kind words. I appreciate it. I've always tried to create this sort of new level of journalism where it's like, it's okay to be a fan. Like, that's the point of this. Like, it's okay to have great objective conversations and at the same time be passionate about something. So I always try and show that because at the end of the day, this is a sport that brings so much passion out of us. We have to, we have to communicate that to our readers, our viewers, our listeners. It has to happen. It can't all just be this like objectivity, this is what happened. We need to say about the significance of why it happened. Now, back to the one-on-one -on -one thing with Messi. Yes, spot on. I mean, listen, my wife was the first person that texted me right after he left the room and he's like, oh my God, how was it? And I said to her, I think I just talked to Lionel Messi. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> positive like that it's actually happened. He comes in the room and it's obviously our team, our production team, and he's very small. He's he's a he, he's a he's like a, a very fragile looking thing when when he's not on the pitch. He's five six, five seven, but there is this confident humility about him. He's so comfortable who he is. He doesn't need to pump his chest. You know, he he, he just lets his magic do the talking, and that's it. And he's very focused on every single answer. And of course, that's come as a result of 
his experience through the years. But anyway, we sit down and it's not a very long time to ask these questions. Obviously, I want to get the best out of him. And to me, the reason why the first question was about, I've never seen you happier is because I'm so, whenever I interview somebody, no matter whether it's Messi or whoever, my most important thing at the very beginning is to get the human being first. I want to know how this person is. I want to know who they are as a human. And 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 that and that was not going to change with Messi. And, and I'm glad that he and he appreciated it, I think, because he gave a great answer and and really explained like how happy he was. So anyway, we talk about, you know, the growth of the game in the US and the growth of the game in MLS. You know, how, how big do you think US and soccer can be? The Copa America's here next year, 2026. And he's like, it's up to it's up to US, it's up to MLS. Like it was another good, good answer. He finishes, we shake hands. I tell him, Josh, I say, by the way, I'm a lifelong Aston Villa fan at the end. And he says, oh, say hello to Divo Martinez, you know, uh, Emiliano Martinez, who's the Argentina goalkeeper who plays for us. So that, you know, so he, he, he has a little humor in him. And, you know, this is a man that's demanded by everybody all the time. And he's just very focused on you in that moment. He leaves. And like I said, for like the first five minutes, I didn't think it was a real thing that happened. I thought it was like a dream. And it, it, I think it took until the next day to realize I just talked to the greatest player the game has ever seen, just me and him, and I will cherish it for the rest of my life. I feel like we should end there, but I want to ask you more. <laughs> Let's go. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> the thing that, that, you know, I'm not in the habit of feeling happy for multi-hundred millionaire athletes, but Leo Messi, you know, I feel happy for the guy, and I, I don't quite get why. I mean, Paul Tenorio did a piece in The Athletic that talked about how Messi is like on the field defending his teammates and in the locker room he's, you know, becoming one of the lads and he's giving everybody beats by Dre and which are owned by <laughs> Apple, which is an MLS sponsor, which is also paying Messi a lot of money. He's humble. He gave DeAndre Yedlin the captain's armband during the trophy presentation on Saturday in Nashville. Tenorio quotes in his story Tata Martino, the coach, talking about how Messi had removed La Moquila, the backpack, the weight off of his shoulders, and he quotes one of his, uh, his, his former World Cup teammates who plays for Tigres in the Mexican League, Leo está suelto, Leo is loose, ahora camina y va en el aire, Not, now he walks on air. It is so weird to see like the greatest athlete in his sport, perhaps of all time, be sort of talked about and sort of talk about himself in these very human terms. And I think you drew some of that out of him in your interview, but it's kind of cool, right? It's amazing. It's amazing. I'll tell you another story. When he's arriving, he's already here. And obviously, Inter Miami and MLS are getting ready for that ridiculous, monumental, super bullish presentation at DRV Pink Stadium, you know, and there's all the lights and fireworks and music and all that stuff. You know, it was obviously a hot ticket, including for the team players themselves. They have a WhatsApp group. This is a story through DeAndre Yedlin. They have a WhatsApp group. And in this WhatsApp group, they're all the team players. And this is days, literally days after Messi arrived. So they're just getting to know each other. And everybody's like talking about, you know, whatever, you know, how uh, this presentation and the, the beginning of the League's Cup, etc. And Leo Campana, the Equatorian striker says, uh, by the way, do we have, is there any chance we I could get two more tickets for this thing? Like, it's going to be great, whatever. Oh, how many do you need? I got you. It's Leo Messi. 
replying in the WhatsApp group. And they're all just like, oh my God, like I've literally said hello to you and you're already in here saying hello. You don't speak English, but you're trying to figure out and you're trying to help other people get tickets. It's just the kind of person that he is. And, and he, he's two things. He's very passionate about the game and he's a family man. And that includes friends and teammates and everything. It, you know, he's very loyal to that. You know, every celebration has been pointed at his kids. He, like you said about giving the captain's armband to the under Yedlin and lifting the League's Cup trophy with him. All these things are not coincidental. They are part of who he is. And it all begins because when he was a six, seven-year-old kid in Rosario, Argentina, nobody would look at him. Nobody would give him the time of day. Everybody thought he was nothing. He maybe was a good dribbler, but he was like a tiny little dwarf of a player. Why would we give him anything? So he's always had to prove to himself. And as in that journey, he's had people that have supported him. And he's never going to forget that. He has the mind of the underdog. And when you are an underdog, you're also somebody that cherishes other underdogs and wants to, and that's who he is. I'm going to be honest with you guys. It makes me uncomfortable to be this positive about anyone <laughs> or anything. Like something bad is going to happen. Like so, there's always something dark. The whole premise of this show is that sports are a cesspool. Maybe not the whole premise, <laughs> but a premise of the show is that sports are a cesspool. And I feel like this whole conversation is a test for me of are we allowed to be happy about, <laughs> so, about something that is just so, like, we're being marketed to, we're being sold this thing. The guy is, like, obviously, like, delivered, but, like... Why, why do I feel nervous? Why do I feel like we something bad is things. just about to happen? <laughs> and we're getting some good things. Exactly. I mean, Josh, I think maybe uh, uh, Dr. Melfi from The Sopranos might be the best person to answer <laughs> that for you. But uh, but I think, listen, I'm just, I'm the biggest believer that when there are things to celebrate, celebrate the hell out of them. Don't question anything. I mean, obviously, to a degree, there's obviously, you know, we are journalists and we're here to try and figure out the context of everything. But my point is this, whenever you're seeing magic, and that's exactly what we're seeing, like, you know, this is why we love sports, because the body doesn't lie. What we're seeing in that free kick against Cruz Azul or the stoppage time equalizer against FC Dallas or the 10 goals or him just like, you know, casually taking on three people and scoring a goal. That's that's the truth. We are seeing the truth. Just like Michael Jordan was the truth, this is the truth, and you have to celebrate that. What becomes this even bigger to me, selfishly, as a Latin American, is that an Argentinian who doesn't speak English, in fact, he refuses to, right, is taking over the continent with just his game. So yes, MLS, yes, Apple, yes, the, yes, the money that he's making, but in the end, none of it works if it doesn't work on the pitch, and he's doing it. And he's doing it to a nation and a world that's still growing the sport. And that, to me, is something to celebrate. We need to celebrate this as well because this is a country that's still... Soccer is a big deal with certain demographics, right? 12 to 21 years old, this is their sport. But there are so many beautiful things happening about the beautiful game and the U.S. that we need to celebrate. And Messi is the perfect, at this moment, ambassador for it. Luis Miguel, Echegaray. He's basically covering Lionel Messi full-time in America. <laughs> I might ask for a race. <laughs> Thank you, fellas. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for coming on the show, man.
no afterballs today or even a single afterball. What's a non-afterball show called, Stefan? We need to come up with a term for that. We need an afterball name for no afterball. We'll workshop that. <laughs> that is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.